I want to go to the Lord in prayer. And you know, every once in a while when you're preparing messages, or in this case, I actually, I've preached this message, but I've reworked it. And you know what happened? It became a living word to me. And, I, and the more I messed with it, the more I changed it. And all of a sudden, it, it's become almost uh, a different message. It's amazing how much I changed it. But I, I want to just say this. The Spirit of God, sometimes when you're working on things, it, it moves from like being a sermon to I really feel God wants to say these words to you today. And I believe if you'll open your heart to it, God's going to speak into your spirit. And I believe that this could be a transformational moment. I, I really felt that we had an incredible service in the first service. People were deeply impacted, folks. Great response. So let's open our hearts to what God wants to say to us, not only uh, collectively, but also individually. Father, I thank you that we are gathered in your name and that you are with us. I believe, Holy Spirit, that you want to speak profoundly and powerfully into our lives. You want to speak to the broken places, the wounded places, the places where we have been confused and perplexed. Lord, you want to speak words of life, words of hope, words of grace, words of conviction, words of forgiveness. And we thank you for that. And Lord, we want to be receivers of it. So open, awaken us today. Awaken us to your presence. Lord, we're here to encounter you, the true and the living God. And we want to experience the fullness of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I was reflecting a little bit on the nature of worship, and I was thinking about the Israelites. You know, they, they actually came to the temple, and they brought gifts as they came to the temple. And I was reminded of an admonition that was given to them in 1 Chronicles chapter 16 and verse 29, and it says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Now, I want to just point out to you immediately that says that we need to focus on whom when we come before God. We need to focus on him. This is not about us, it's about him. And I believe sometimes as Christians we make the focus in the Christian experience about us rather than upon God. And it gets us into all kinds of trouble. It says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his Holiness. In other words, it's something he does inside of us that changes us so that we become like him. We become holy even as he is holy. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. And I want to just make this declaration. There is a day coming when every person in every nation will make this declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day will come. How exciting is that? Amen. Every knee shall bow. C.S. Lewis reminds us that we cannot ultimately worship apart from others. And, you know, as I was thinking about this, that little thought came into my mind. You know, you have these little tributaries of water. You know, a little stream starts in the mountains. And then eventually it keeps intensifying and it merges with another little tributary. And eventually you have a little brook going and the brook continues down and it merges with other brooks. And eventually you have a river. And that river eventually merges with other rivers until you have a mighty river. 
And I believe that this is what God has in mind when he brings believers together. And Lewis reminds us that the call to worship is never a solitary time in God's presence. It's always more than that. It's, 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 not, it's that, but it's more. And he says the New Testament does not envision solitary religion, some kind of regular assembly for regular worship and instruction is everywhere taken for granted in the epistles. In other words, God calls people together. So we must be regularly practicing members of the church. Of course, we differ in temperaments. This is important. God didn't make us the same. Some people are shy. Some people are outgoing. Some people are more retiring, more withdrawn. Some people are very extroverted. They're out there. Some find it more natural to approach God in solitude. Lewis himself was like that. He was more of a quiet, retiring person. But we must go to the church as well, for the church is not a human society of people united by their natural affinities, but it is the body of Christ in which all members, however different, and, by the way, he, God, rejoices in their differences and by no means wishes to iron them out. In other words, he's not interested in you and I trying to make people like you and me. He's trying to allow us to accept people for who they are in their different expression of who they are. He goes on to say, we must share this common life, complimenting and helping one another precisely because of our differences. Now, how many think that's beautiful that God would, you know, he didn't make us all the same. He has, a, he has a, in mind that you and I would, would flow together and because we have strengths and others have different strengths than we have and some have weaknesses, as we merge together like those little tributaries, something more dynamic happens. Something more profound happens. You and I are shaped and influenced and impacted by each other. You know, I've had the wonderful privilege of traveling, you know, and I call, I call it a privilege. And I've been to other cultures and other countries, and I've, I've seen the richness, and it opens you up to things that, you know, that actually makes you a better person as a result of it. You experience a greater uh, slice of life, if I can use that expression, and it widens you as a person. Sometimes we become very parochial, very limited in our understanding, but it's important that we experience. And God, by his grace, in Canada, he's bringing the nations to Canada. And uh, our culture is so multicultural today. We have been enriched by that. Yeah. You know, not, we're not diminished by it, folks. We shouldn't be threatened by it. We should be enriched by it, learning from one another and gleaning the best that we can. And I believe that that's true in the body of Christ. That's what God intended so that you and I would exercise our various gifts. But when we look at this idea of worship, I believe it's so misunderstood. You know, many of us make the assumption that worship only transpires when we meet together here. But that's a, that is a part of it, and an important part. Lewis just brought that out to our attention. But it's more than that. Worship is not just what we just did. We, we did focus our thoughts on God. We did express our adoration to God. That's a part of worship. And we're gonna look at that a little later, and that's important. But we also recognize that Worship extends into our life. It extends into the days that we're living away from the facility, Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. We're still called to be worshipers. Worship is ultimately an attitude that we carry within us. We are either a worshiper or we're not, or we diminish our worship by some of our behavior, if I can say it that way. You know, I believe worship is the grid that we're seeing life through. 
What do I mean by that? Well, are we filled with gratitude and thanksgiving as we see the life through the lens of a loving God? In other words, do we, do we have such a revelation of God in his love and goodness and grace that we're looking through those lenses and we're interpreting all of life through that lens? It's affecting how we're relating to people. Or are we looking at life through brokenness and our hearts are filled with hurt and bitterness and anger at how life is being played out differently than what we want or expect? And that which captures uh, our affections and which we put our trust in and desire for become actually the objects of worship in our lives. And so sometimes we think, well, I, I worship God, but the reality is our life is telling us differently. We're pursuing something, and that becomes our worship. We're going after that. It's, we're, we're giving our lives towards that, and it becomes an idol, a little God, and we're actually, in reality, worshiping that. Uh, Thomas Carlyle said, worship is actually transcendent wonder. Here we are celebrating uh, Thanksgiving this weekend. It's important to understand that the nature of a thankful heart is really one of the truest expressions of worship. That when I walk around day to day, I'm filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. I'm actually in a state of worship. And you are in a state of worship when we live like that. We're worshipers. That's what it's about. And God wants us to live with that kind of heart and that kind of attitude. So I raise these questions. Are our hearts filled with deep gratitude towards God? Are we rejoicing over his amazing grace in our lives? Are our eyes lifted upward to God, regardless of the trials that we currently face? I love that psalm. It says, I lift up my eyes. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You see, you know, what happens in trial is we're tempted to look at the problem. Isn't that true? We, we always are drawn to the challenges that are before us. And I'm not suggesting we pretend they don't exist. I'm not suggesting that. But I am saying that when we make that our focus and we lose sight of where our help comes from, then we end up moving away from a state of worship. We move away from being filled with gratitude. We move away from a state of thanksgiving and celebration and we end up becoming ensnarled by the problem and it begins to drag us down. And my prayer today is God's gonna lift us up. He's gonna lift us beyond our troubles and beyond our problems because when we have an encounter with God, it changes something inside of us. And so in Psalm 95, I want us to turn there. I wanna just read through the passage here really briefly and then we're gonna look at these verses. It says, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. See, we've already done that. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. You know, earlier I, 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 would, I thought this would be a great ending to the psalm, but it doesn't end there because worship continues on. We're gonna learn a little bit more intently what hinders worship or what, what, what happens when we don't worship rightly and how we get overwhelmed by trial and, and temptation. It says, today if only you would hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Mesa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I, had, what I, what I did. For 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my way, so I declared on 
oath in my anger. They will never enter my rest. Psalm 95 really has three movements to it. And we want to look at that today. And I want to, I want to just look at the essence, that, uh, the elements that actually reflect the essence of what true biblical worship is. And the first one is an expression of rejoicing. Now, I alliterated it. That means I've, I've started the letters with the same uh, words with the same letter. But really, this idea of rejoicing is an idea of celebration. It's the idea of being filled with gratitude and thanksgiving. That's where I'm getting this idea that you know, worship, the heart of it is thanksgiving. If you're, if you're not full of gratitude and thanksgiving, you're not worshiping. You see, it doesn't matter what you think. It's, that's not what worship is. Worship comes out of this celebratory mode. It comes out of this heart filled with thanksgiving and gratitude towards God. And I think we can certainly learn best these expressions from even children. It's interesting uh, how often we are being confronted to stop being worshipers. That's why sometimes the enemy allows, you know, he, he will attack us in certain points. Or God allows trials to come into our life to see what's going on inside of us. And we can see what's going on inside of us. How do we overcome these kind of pressures in our lives, the kind of pressures we're experiencing right now in this day. Um, and God many times uses some of the weakest members of humanity to give us an understanding how to become overcomers. Isn't that interesting? God uses a child to teach us. In Psalm 8 and verse 1, he says, Lord, uh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. So now he's, he's lifted us up, but then in the next verse he says, through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I thought, this is such a unique uh, contrast between verse 1 and verse 2. And I was looking at it, and then I, I, I decided, you know what, I, I'm going to read a few commentators and see what they say about it. And Derek Kidner says this, with all of heaven and earth proclaiming Oh, I don't have it on my uh, PowerPoint here, but with all of heaven and earth proclaiming God in verse one, the rising discord of foes or enemy or avenger presents a challenge which, which God will meet with what is weak in the world. Haven't you noticed God uses the weak things of the world to confound the strong? Doesn't God sometimes use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise? Isn't that an amazing thing? So here God is gonna use the weakest thing, the child, you know, the, under, the undeveloped. And he, he uses uh, the immaterial, the speaking, the mouth. And then he uses the immature, the child. And then we see an example of how God does this in the life of Jesus. Now remember when Jesus is walking down to uh, Jerusalem on Palm Sunday and the religious leaders are upset because the people are praising Christ. Remember that? And they say, tell your disciples to stop this you know, this, this worship, basically. And Jesus says, if I tell them to do that, even the stones will cry out. I can't, because this is, it's, what's in the, it's in their heart. That's, that's what we're talking about here. On Palm Sunday, Jesus shows the true confession of love and trust is a devastating answer to the accuser and the arsenal of doubt and slander. I think that's so powerful. What, what, what is, what's the application? What's Kidner trying to bring out to us? Well, simply this, that when you and I learn how to love and trust God, we're defeating the challenges that are coming against our soul. Do you realize that when you can sing God's praises in an hour of darkness, that is a powerful expression of trust. And that 
overcomes the work of the enemy that he's trying to accomplish in your life in that time of testing. You know, that's why we need to learn how to praise God at all times, in every situation. It's so critical. In Psalm 95, we find several ways in which we ought to come to God. The psalmist exhorts us, he says, worship, really, come let us worship and sing. Let us come before him. Worship begins by coming into the presence of God. It's an invitation. Come into my presence, God's saying. And we have, we have heard that invitation. You've heard that invitation today. You've come into his presence. Even if you're live streaming, you've made a decision, I'm gonna come into the presence of God. But we find that the coming must be with a certain amount of delight and excitement. You know, we have to be more prepared, I think, when we come in, to, to celebrate Christ. There needs to be an excitement. There needs to be a joy. You know, we need to prepare our hearts. I mean, if you if you've stayed up and watched the late, 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 late movie, you know, and it's like four or three in the morning and you go to bed. And I remember when I was a youth pastor, these young adults would do this all the time. And then they, they'd come to church and you could see them, you know, their eyeballs were just barely hanging on. They were just about ready to shut. You know, they, they could hardly stay awake. You know, they, they, how can you get into anything? I mean, and then when the preacher started preaching, well, then when the music ended, they just went to sleep. You know, it's, it's like some people are engaged with you and then some just fall asleep. And they're just going, I'm so so sorry, Pastor, I'm so tired. But, you know, really, we should actually prepare to come to worship God. See, I I don't think we think this way, but maybe we ought to reconsider how we prepare on Saturday nights for Sunday morning or Sunday night. We should come prepared. We should come to prepare with an excitement. Man, I'm I'm coming to meet the King of Kings. I mean, how many here, if you were going to meet a celebrity and you knew you were going to meet him the next day, you'd be pretty excited. How many here might be a little excited, and you'd probably get yourself a little bit prepared to have that meeting? You'd probably, you know, think about all the things that you'd want to make sure you did or didn't do or said or didn't say or all the rest of it. But isn't that what we're doing here today? We're coming into the presence of the Most High God, and there should be some excitement. He says, come, let us sing for joy. There should be joy in our hearts. There's, this is a moment of celebration. We're here to praise God. You see, yeah, but I don't feel like it pastor you know but that's letting our emotions dictate our actions and we're saying no I'm going to tell my emotions to get in line with what I'm about to do I'm not going to let my emotions define my life I'm going to obey the scriptures by saying hey the word of God tells me to come with expectation and excitement I don't know about you but every Sunday I come excited Anybody figured that out yet? I, I come, people say, how are you doing today? I'm going, awesome, this is so great. We're gonna be in the presence of God today. You know, I'm, I'm wired for sound. Why? Because I know who we're meeting today. We're meeting God Almighty. I mean, this is better than uh, presidents and, and royalty. I mean, this is, you know, it, it would be kind of fun to meet some royal people. Sure, that's great. But when you're meeting the king of kings, isn't he the ultimate royalty? Yeah, that's amazing. We have that privilege today. Uh, so then, it's, uh, this is interesting. Robert Shannon says, one of the most conservative of Jewish sects is the Hasid, Hasidic Judaism. And they're so devoted to uh, ritual and custom, but surprisingly, joyous dance is a part of their expression of worship. And their founder said this, to be sad is a sin. Wow, that's strong. I said to myself, uh, probably too strong, not quite biblical, you know, uh, that, I said, that's too strong of a statement. But the idea behind the expression is simply coming into God's presence. That should bring joy to our hearts. In the presence of the Lord, there's what? 
fullness of joy. Now, that does not mean that, we, that we're not struggling with some things, and we'll get to that in a moment. As a matter of fact, uh, Psalm 34 says, I will extol the Lord when everything is going good in my life. Well, it doesn't say that. It says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Yeah, but I just lost a loved one, Pastor. I'm lamenting. Yeah, but it doesn't change what we need to do here. It says, even though I'm sorrowing, I can still have joy. Even though I'm going through uh, difficult times, I'm, I'm struggling with mental anguish today, I can still praise God. I can praise him in spite of my emotions right now. That's a very powerful thing to do, and I'm, I'm going to show you what happens. Paul, I think, picks up on this idea when he's writing to the Thessalonians. He says it this way, be joyful always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances. Notice he did not say for all circumstances, but in all circumstances, we're to give thanks. There needs to be a lens at which I'm looking at life through. And the lens is simply this. I know who God is. I know that God is good. And I know that God is loving. And I know that all things are going to work for good to those that love him. So I can have this a, a great confidence in God's grace that no matter what's happening around me, even though it seems to be going backwards right now, you know, I can still be thankful. I can still be filled with gratitude. I can still be filled with joy. And I can still have a hope in God that transcends my outward circumstances. He says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So even in those moments of, of painful experiences, when anxiety would attack us, we ought to express gratitude and thanksgiving. I mean, Paul is writing some of these things. Listen, he writes this from a prison cell in Philippians. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm gonna say it again, rejoice. Why does he have to say this? Because the battle in our souls is for you and I to allow despair to overtake us, to allow grief to overwhelm us, to allow doubt to fill our hearts, to be you know, overcome by frustration about how things are working out in life. These are the, the enemies that come against our soul. What's the antidote? Like we're to rejoice in the Lord. We have a hope that transcends this world. It goes beyond this world. We're looking beyond this world. We're looking up. Our help is coming from above. We're not just going, well, you know, I'm looking to humanity to solve all my problems. Listen, they're going to let me down. They always do. But if I look higher than that, I'm going to be okay. I'm going to look to God. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And then this beautiful verse, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, do not be anxious about anything. Do you know what that tells me? It tells me that all of us sometime in our life will have mental anguish. How many here can say, you know, over the course of your life, you've experienced moments of mental anguish? You've experienced moments of, of discouragement or despair or, you know, like it, it's been a tough moment. Listen, do not be anxious. The Bible is not telling us it doesn't happen. It just says, don't stay there. It says, but in everything with prayer and petition. And then he adds this little this little uh, note, he, he, he kind of clarifies this prayer and petition. What does he say we need to add to that prayer and petition? Thanksgiving. thanksgiving. Why? Because thanksgiving is at the heart of what a worshiper is all about. That you and I are filled with gratitude and thanksgiving because we know that when we're talking to God, we have an audience with someone who can do something about it and who loves us and wants to do something about it. We have this, we have this uh, a right to speak to God. Very powerful. Then he goes on to say here, 
Bring your request to God. In other words, regardless of our current circumstances, we need to live in an attitude of gratitude. But this is not a life where we're in denial. We're not denying that there's pain in life or there's problems in life or there's times of mental anguish. No, we know those things are existing. Rather, what Paul is stating for us is we're to bring even these trying times to God in prayer, but with an attitude of thanksgiving. I love that. So what is the psalmist saying to us here as he relates to being a worshiper, that we need to come to God with delight? How many of us listening or sitting here in the, in the, in the congregation You've come today with excitement and delight. That's your attitude. That's some of you, okay. I'm hoping that next week you'll all figure it out and go, boy, I'm coming to church that way. I'm coming to church with the right attitude. I'm gonna get in on what God wants to lay down. You know, there was a gal in our church, she goes, Pastor, I'm picking up what you're laying down. I like that. Well, God wants you to pick up what he's laying down today. He really does, so that you can really experience what he's talking about here. Uh, I think the enemy wants us to fix our minds on our problems. How many think that's true? He wants you to get problems focused. And I'm not saying that you can't think about your problems. What I'm saying is that's not the only thing you're doing. I want you to think beyond your problems. I want you to look up and say, okay, God, we're in this together. We've got a problem. You know, I'm putting my trust in you. I belong to you. I am yours, and so we're in this together. What are we gonna do about this? That's the way we need to talk to God. How are we gonna handle this? Let's partner with God in these situations. And you know what, God's a good partner. He's a very good partner. He's got more resources than I've got, and uh, he's got ability to do things that you and I don't have. So I think true worship connects us to God. It looks to God. And in that moment, it sees God and gains a proper perspective of the problem. How many know that one of the things we tend to do with our problems is make them bigger than they are and make them more insurmountable than they should be, right? And so what we need to do is look to God and say, God, this is nothing for you. It's a big deal to me, but it's minor for you. I just want you to know, can you handle the minorness of my problem? Because for me, it's a big deal down here. You know, I think God likes that. When we're in his presence, in this attitude of worship, we find hope. I love that. That's the outcome of meeting with God. You know, Zechariah promises us that many of our difficulties cannot be solved on a human level. And he says something very profound in chapter four. As a matter of fact, he says, many times it takes God himself to solve the problem for us. Not by might, he says. Not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I love that verse. Many times God changes my problems by changing me and my attitude. Anybody have that experience? You know, here I thought the problem was the problem. God goes, no, you're the problem. Anybody have that? Yeah, you're not, the problem's not the problem. You're the problem. Change the attitude and you don't have the problem. I mean, the thing doesn't disappear, but you have a whole new outlook on it and you, can, you start living and you go, wow, I'm free from this thing. This is no longer defining my life anymore. It didn't go away, but I'm living in freedom now. I'm living in joy now. I'm living in peace now. I've not allowed it to define my life anymore. It's no big deal. I've learned those beautiful four little letters that I taught uh, Rachel when she was a little girl and she wanted to know everything we're gonna do on our vacation, and I said, listen, Rachel, here's the way you're gonna handle this vacation. It'll help you with life, and this goes like this, F-L-O-W. It spells flow. 
you know, we've prayed, we've asked God to direct us. Whatever comes our way today, God is just going to lead us. And don't let any of these turbulent things that come along distress your soul. And you know, I had to use those four little letters a few times on this vacation. Right, Patty? I had to say to her, listen, dear, I'm going to give you four nice little letters that are going to help you right now. F-L-O-W. And it was, we laughed, because she knew exactly what I was trying to say to her. And you know what? It worked out really good. It works out so good, because God was in it. God is in everything. He's even in our difficulties. He's even in our interruptions. He's even in our delays, folks. We just need to learn how to trust him. But I like what Zacharias says a little later. He says this, what are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you'll become level ground. Do you know the Bible uses a mountain as an image of problems? Remember Jesus is telling us about prayer. He said, if you pray, you can say to this mountain, be thou plucked up and removed and cast into the sea. Now, I don't believe he's speaking, now some people think he can do it, you know, Literally, I, I think he was speaking more metaphorically there. That's my opinion. I think he's basically saying, you know those mountains that are before you that seem immovable to you? They're not to God. And you can say to God, listen, there's a mountain before me, and I believe that you can remove it and make it a level ground. Does anybody here have a mountain before you that needs to be removed? Uh, I'm sure there's a few of us. Isn't that great that you can come to God and say, Lord, I ask that you'd move this mountain. And... God is going to do something. He'll either change you or he'll change the circumstances that you're in. Uh, Now, it's interesting to me, as I was looking at this subject of worship, uh, I I read an article years ago by a pastor by the name of Eugene Peterson. Anybody ever heard of Eugene Peterson? He wrote a translation of the Bible called The Message. So they're interviewing Eugene Peterson, and I think this is powerful because it'll speak to the moments that we're in. And he says, uh, now, today people come to pastors for help with addictions, abuse, incest, and other complex problems that didn't seem as common a generation ago. What can a pastor do for someone that that a mental health provider cannot? It's an interesting question, okay? But I, I, I love what Peterson says. He said, I guess I want to question the premise. Do pastors face more difficult problems today than in previous generations? And this is what he said. I know that this is a mixed up, difficult, damaged generation, but it's arguable that the main difference today is not how much people are hurting, but how much they expect to be relieved from their hurting. Well, that's a very profound statement right there. See, we have changed our expectations over time. We expect far more today. That's why we live at greater disappointment. He said the previous generations suffered, or centuries suffered, just as much. In fact, probably much more. Just think of all the illness, death, and childbirth, infant mortality, plagues. The big difference today is that we have this mentality that if it's wrong, you can fix it. You don't have to live with any discomfort or frustration. And I'm agreeing with Eugene Peterson. I think there are things we have to live with that are frustrating, and they, uh, and they are discomforting, and they're designed to do something in our lives. It's like, you know when you want to create a pearl? Do you know how you, that happens? It's inside of a shell of a clam, and it's the, 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 the little uh, clam there is being irritated, and he's you know, battling against the irritation, and it's creating something inside of him. You know, how does God create character inside of us? I mean, if he just let us drive through life 
No inconvenience, no delays, no nothing. Everything goes our way. You know what happens? We become very shallow people. But so God wants to develop something inside of you. He's going to let a few bumps hit us, a few delays, you know, a few frustrating moments, some, some things that challenge you to develop as a person. He goes on to say, so the interviewer goes, well, what do you do then when a parishioner assumes you can fix his or her problem? He says, you have to take a step back and ask, why am I a pastor? What's my primary responsibility to this congregation? The most important thing a pastor does is stand in a pulpit every Sunday and say, let us worship God. You say, why is that important? If that ceases to be the primary thing I do in my energy, my imagination, and the way I structure my life, then I no longer function as a pastor. I've picked up some other identity. I cannot fail to call the congregation to worship God, to listen to his word, to offer themselves to God. Worship becomes a place where we can have our lives redefined for us. And isn't that what happens on Sunday after Sunday? That you have the opportunity to come into God's presence and to have your life redefined to begin to see things from a different perspective, to get God's vantage point rather than humanity's vantage point, which is always quite interesting. You know, lots of grumbling, lots of complaining, lots of blaming, lots of frustration over here. But when you look at God's vantage point, you go, hey, God cares about me. God loves me. God uh, can overcome these problems in my life. You know, lots of interesting things. It's a redefi- redefinition of what we're, how we're living life. He says, if we're no longer operating out of that redefinition, the pastoral job is hopeless. Or if not hopeless, it's a def- defection. I'm moving away from my calling, he says. I've quit my basic work. So then he goes on, the interview says, well, my guess is that the average person coming from pastoral care doesn't understand that. And he says, you're right. In large part, North American leaders of the church have advertised The church is how to get your problems met. Come and we'll show you how to be successful in your life and family. Meet a lot of good friends. They've abdicated this primary call to worship in an attempt to satisfy the the consumer. So they've shifted away from what it's all about. What's happened is the church has made it about us rather than about God. And the moment you and I make life about yourself rather than God, you're in trouble. You don't even know it. We need to redefine our lives and say, my life, it's not about me. What's the main purpose of life? The main purpose of my life and the main purpose of your life as a child of God is to bring glory to God. It's not about what's in it for me. It's about what I can do to to help people see who God is through my life. That's what it's about. We need to help people understand that. So then he, he basically says, so what should pastors promise people? Again, I love Eugene Peterson. I'm not sure pastors or the church are in the business of promising anything. That's not what we're called to do. We are called to be witnesses. We're called, uh, we're called people to discipleship. We're to engage in the formation of spiritual life and Christian character. There's an element of promise in the nature of the gospel, but it's usually so different from what people expect that they don't see it as a promise. So what is my business? If I enter into the human potential business, I've lost my calling. The psalmist moves on to give us the reasons why we ought to worship. The first one is simply based on who God is. God is worthy of worship. The word worship actually comes from the root word worthy. God is worthy. Listen to what the psalmist says in uh, verses uh, three. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hands 
are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Now I want you to notice back in verse uh, four there. It says in his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. Now notice there's a contrast between depth and height. You know what this is in the Hebrew language? It's called a, it's called a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M. Merisms are uh, when, you, when you basically take the exact opposite and what you're saying is and it includes everything in between. It's like when we talk about Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. The first letter of the Greek alphabet, the last letter. And he's everything in between. So it's not like he's this and that. No, he's everything. He's all-consuming. We need to know this. The expressions of the depth of the earth to the mountain peaks is a merism. The psalmist points to God's greatness above all the idols that humanity worships. You see, whatever you're pursuing after and idolizing is an idol to you. It's, it's false worship. You know, I'm gonna say this. The real battle in this world is about who you will worship. You see, go back to the temptation with Jesus in the wilderness. What was the temptation? If you are the son of God, worship me, Satan says. You shall worship the Lord thy God and only him. That's the real temptation in our life. Whom will we worship? We will worship something. Every human being is worshiping. We're all worshipers on this planet. Many people are worshiping false things. They're worshiping popularity. They're worshiping success. They're worshiping you know, other people. They're worshiping all kinds of stuff. God's calling us to worship himself. Let me move on to the second element regarding the nature of worship. And it's an attitude of reverence. In true worship, celebration, gratitude, thanksgiving, eventually turns into awe, reverence for God, humility. That's why I believe humility is one of the marks of Christian maturity. We're in a state where we realize how little we are in relationship to God, how limited we are in relationship to his unlimitedness, if I can say it that way. And one of the ways we express it is by bowing down. One meaning of, the, uh, of worship is to prostrate ourselves before God. Notice what John does in the book of Revelation. He, here's a person that walked with Jesus on the earth, but when he sees Jesus in his exalted state, it says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He's in a state of worship. Pro, uh, Psalm 95 says, come let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Is that amazing? Think about it. Really, the second reason that the psalm, the first reason is simply that because of who God is. The second reason is because of who we are in relationship to God. He is the maker. We are the created. He's the creator. We worship him uh, because we are his people. We are his covenant people. I'm just gonna, sh- I'm skipping a few things here. It's okay. Let me move on to the third element that reflects the essence of worship. It's our obedient response. Now, I want you to notice, uh, we have to have a sense of wonder about God. He's transcendent. He's beyond us. I know we focus in on Jesus and Jesus speaks of the nearness of God, but God is also transcendent. It means 
He's above and beyond anything you and I can fully comprehend. He's eternal. He's unlimited. Uh, so it should, it should bring an awe in our lives. It should bring humility into our hearts. But then we move on here, and I used to not like this part of the psalm. I thought, oh, I love these first seven verses. They're so great. But then all of a sudden you have this shift. But now I realize that's part of worship. That's why it's there. God is looking for our response. How many know uh, intellectual knowledge does not transform our lives? Simple obedience does. You see, it's application of the word of God that's going to change you. So let me say it to you this way. When you and I uh, leave this place, uh, we haven't fully worshipped yet. Can I say it that way? Like you've come into the house of God, you've sang praises and adoration to God, you've heard the word of God, you know, to you. Hopefully there's been a sense of, wow, I'm in God's presence, I'm with God's people. But now I'm hearing God speak into my life individually, and he's speaking to me specifically. It's a living word. You know, I've read this text many, many times, but, you know, for some reason, it just came more alive to me in the last uh, 48 hours. It just, just really came alive to me. Listen to what it says in Psalm 95, 7b. Today, if only you would hear his voice. Now, I want you to notice something. He's going to quote something that happened in the book of Exodus. That's in the past. Now we're in the Psalms, which is a lot later on in human history. But the book of Hebrews is going to quote these verses. This is after Jesus has been on earth. Another thousand years has gone by. And now I want to say something to us. This is not just 2,000 years ago, folks. Today means this very moment. This means October the 10th, 2021, God is speaking into your life. Today, if only you would hear his voice, it says, do not harden your hearts. Don't close your hearts off. Don't, don't dismiss this. Don't just, you know, how many times have, have people, you know, come to church, heard a sermon, left, and somebody said, well, what, what was the sermon about? I don't know. Has that ever happened? How many can honestly admit that's happened, right? I don't know. You know what that tells me? The enemy came along, was watching and waiting, and everything that was being said, he was just taking it away from you. You weren't processing. You weren't hearing the voice of God speaking into your spirit. God's trying to address something in your life. You don't want that to happen. You don't want, you, you want to hear what the Spirit of God is trying to say to you when you come into a service. He says, don't harden your hearts as they did at Meribah, as they did that day at Mesa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me, they tried me, and though they had seen what I did, for 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they've not known my ways. Now, to hear in the Hebrew language means to act upon. Jesus said it this way in Matthew. He who has ears, let him hear. What's he saying? If you're hearing what I'm saying, well, do it. Because if you don't do it, it's got no good to you. It's going to not help you one little bit. You're like what James says, you know, you're like the man who looks at himself in the mirror and he forgets what he looks like. Those that hear the word of God and they don't do it, it's got no value to you. That's why a lot of people say, well, I've been going to church for years and it hasn't done anything for me. That's not an indictment against the church. That's an indictment against you. What you're saying is I haven't put anything into practice. I haven't applied it into my own life. I'm hearing, but I'm not doing it. 
You know, if I'm a doctor and I, I write out a, a you know, a, this is the regimen of exercise you need to get your body in good physical condition. You go, oh, that's really nice, doc, and put it in your pocket. And then about five months later, you pull it back. Oh, yeah, I forgot about this thing. It, ha- it hasn't done you one bit of good. The only good it's going to do is if you take it out the next day and you go, okay, what was it I need to do now? And you start following the directives and actually act on it. That's what will change you. That's what he's saying here. Uh, as a matter of fact, Richard Foster says it this way, if worship does not change us, it's not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of eternity is to change. Worship begins in holy expectancy and ends in holy obedience. That is powerful, folks, and that is true. I look at Isaiah. He's in the presence of God. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. This is my response to it. God sends an angel. He touches his lips. He's cleansed. And then God says, who's going to go for us and speak on our behalf? And Isaiah says, here, my Lord, I'll go. You see, something happened in that encounter with God. And that's what we need to say. God, I'm coming to expect you to do something in my life that will bring about transformation. But he says, don't harden your hearts like they did. And they didn't do anything. You know what those guys did? Oh, my goodness. All they could do is complain. You know, uh, even though the psalmist gives us this insightful understanding of a past event, worship is not in the past, but a call in the present today. Act on these things. You know, I wrote down, you know, certain application. I'll give you an example. We find that they disregarded God's word by not acting on it in faith. If God calls me to forgive those who have sinned against me and I don't forgive them, can I say I've really worshiped? No, I have, I'm not a worshiper. I cannot live in unforgiveness and call myself a worshiper. It doesn't work. You know, to forgive then is an expression of worship. If God calls me to love my enemy and then to love them becomes an act of worship, if I love them, I'm actually worshiping. Isn't that interesting? It's doing something that it doesn't, you know, I think we think worship is it's going to be goosebumps on goosebumps. That's what I think most Christians think. I'm, call, I'm telling you, what real worship is, is when God says, I want you to go forgive that person that just hurt you, and you go over there and do that, even though emotionally you don't feel like doing it, but you've done it. That's really what worship is. How many are getting a new glimpse of worship now? I'm, I'm, I'm expanding it. You know, if, if your mom and dad says, I want you to do this, and you don't do that, you disobey them, you're not worshiping. But if you go do what your mom and dad tells you to do, you're worshiping them. Is that powerful? You're worshiping, not them, but you're worshiping God. Is that neat? See, you and I can actually worship God by obeying our parents. You and I, I can, I'm going to give it to another, uh, another uh, application. This one's going to hit home really hard. You and I can disagree with our government, okay? We can, intellectually, I don't agree with that decision, but they're not asking me to do something illegal or immoral, so then I must submit to them. For me, when I don't submit to them, I'm in rebellion, not against them, I'm in rebellion against God. And when I submit to them, that's an act of worship. That's a shocking, I just said something very shocking, and some of you are just going, wait a minute, I gotta process this. Let me help you process right now because I want you to think about the Israelites. Just think about them for a minute. They're going through the wilderness. Everybody knows the story. They've been delivered from slavery. Remember that? Out of these great miracles. They get into the wilderness, and what are those guys doing? Cloud by day, fire by night, and they're all upset. 
You know, they're wandering around and God's supernaturally providing manna in the wilderness and all they can do is complain. How many have read the book of Numbers? All they're doing is whining and complaining. How many know that's true? Always complaining. You know, they, they're complaining about the food. We want to go back to Egypt. We want leek, cucumbers, and onions, you know. Where's Moses gone? You know, I'm tired of this manna. Manna in the morning, manna at noon time, manna at supper time. Manna, manna, manna. Why? You know, what is it? That's what manna means, by the way. What is it? I'm tired of this food that God's sending, you know. I've, I've tried to bake it, fry it, whatever it is, but, you know, just, I'm just fed up of it. You know, they're complaining all the time. And what they do eventually is the Bible says, you know, I read it to you, but here's how the book of Hebrews says it. So I declare an oath in my anger. Isn't that interesting? That's Psalm 95:11. That word anger there in some translation is disgust. God says, I wasn't just angry with that generation. I was disgusted with them. Why was God disgusted with that generation? Because all they did was complain and blame and get frustrated and they were upset all the time. They were not worshipers, folks. They didn't have gratitude and thanksgiving in their heart. That's why they got into trouble. They didn't enter into the promised land. How many know that's true? And it's a warning. So now in the book of Hebrews we say, so as the Holy Spirit said, well, wait a minute, I thought the psalmist said that. No, the psalmist did say it, but it was the psalmist inspired by God, the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice. So now it's not the psalmist saying it, it's not the book of Hebrew saying it, the writer, it's God the Holy Spirit saying it. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me and for 40 years saw what I did. So I declared on oath and in my anger they shall never enter into my rest. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. Okay, I already quoted that. But then he adds this, verse 12 in Hebrews chapter 3. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Wait a minute. Do you mean when I don't do what God says, I'm actually turning away from God? The answer is, of course. That's exactly what he's saying. And it's, it's a state of unbelief that's causing that to happen. Now, our disobedience is actually a reflection of the condition of our heart. Now, can I ask you a question? You know, how many feel like the Israelites had it tough in the wilderness? Most of us go, well, they're just whiners. Okay, let me ask a different question. How many feel like we have it tough now that we're living in COVID? Well, every hand is up now. We're all frustrated by that. It's the same thing. It's the same exact thing. That's what I'm trying to point out to you guys. Think about this for a minute. You know, if we're walking around, you know, grumping, blaming, criticizing, complaining, are we any different than the Israelites in the wilderness? Not one iota. Let, 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 me, let me just tell you something. This whole thing with COVID, who brought it to this planet? Well, see, it depends on your theology. Good biblical theology says, well, obviously God's allowed this to happen for a reason. And why is it taking so long? You know, God looks at Canada. I was just on the eastern part of Canada here this last week. You know, what he, you know what he's looking at? Here's a nation that's turned its back on him. There's no question in my mind as Canadians. We have really turned our back on God. How is God going to get our attention? He's grabbing our face right now, and he's pulling us right to him and take a good look at me. 
I'm allowing this to happen in your life. How are you going to respond to this? And this is really revealing to you where you're really at. Because I think a lot of people thought they were these great worshipers are finding out they're not really worshipers at all. We weren't living with a heart filled of thanksgiving and gratitude. We were enjoying life and all its blessings. But now that we had some things taken away from us, now we're all upset. That's interesting. Let me point out what happened at Rephidim. This is... This is uh, found here in the book of Exodus. And I'll close with this. I know I'm a few minutes over, but this is important to say this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. Who's leading this expedition? The Lord. They camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. I wrote, note, God led them to this place. Right? How many can say God led them there? Pillar, fire, Cloud by day, fire by night. God brought them there. There's no water there. Okay, now the people are upset. Watch what they do. So they quarreled with Moses. And they said, give us water to drink. Moses said, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? He said, you guys are blaming me and are mad at me, but ultimately, who's, you're really complaining to God. You know, I'm going to say something. All the complaining I hear about all of our leaders, really we're complaining against God but we haven't figured that out yet, okay? It's getting really quiet in here. But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. Yeah, it was a legitimate need, but the way they went about it, they didn't have a spirit of gratitude, an attitude of gratitude. They weren't saying, oh, Lord, we have a need here. Would you please meet it? No, they were angry, you know. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? So now they're blaming, Okay. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. They're not behaving nicely, Lord. This is a very difficult group to lead. Verse five, the Lord answered Moses, walk on ahead of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the staff with you which struck the Nile and go on. And I stood there before them by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Mesa and Meribah. Why did he call them that? Because the word mesa means testing and meribah means quarreling. He said, you put God to the test and you quarreled with God. And you said, is the Lord among us or not? Can I just say something? Is God among us or not? Of course he is. Jesus said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Folks, we gotta, you know what what our problem is? We're looking in the wrong direction. I lift up my eyes to where? The hills. Where does my help come from? God. The Lord, right? Not to humanity. God is showing us humanity doesn't have the answers for COVID. That's what you need to know. We got to look higher. The answer is God. So what is my heart condition? Thanks, full of thanksgiving? Am I truly a worshiper? Do I, do I live in response obedient response to his word? You see, you, you, know, you can say to me, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm happy all the time. I'm thankful all the time. I'm filled with gratitude all the time. Not if you're complaining and criticizing and blaming. You can't make that statement. And I would argue that you're not as good of a worshiper as you think you are. And that's true for me too when I do that. So here's the deal. You know I'm going to end on a positive note. We're going to stand right now because here's what I'm going to say to us. I think it's hard, and I think we all struggle with this from time to time, We do criticize, we do blame, and we are unhappy. I'll give us, and it's true of all of us. 
including myself. I'm not taking myself out of the equation. That's why you're here today. Teach me your way, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness and give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. Because James says, when we are tossed to and fro by every wind, we're double-minded and we become unstable. We want to be people of stability. See, I really believe this is a moment of opportunity we've never had before, brothers and sisters in Christ. This is a moment in an hour of crisis when people around us are, are, are struggling and for, for answers and they don't know where to turn. And you know what? Some of us have been listening to the whining and the complaining and we've joined that crowd. But listen, you and I should be the people that are walking with hope with peace, with joy, with gratitude, with thanksgiving. Our eyes are lifted up. We're looking to God for the solution. And when people from this side see the peace, the joy, the hope that's inside of our souls, we'll be like those little stars shining in the darkness of night. And they will be saying, how can you have such hope in an hour like this? And we are able to say, because my faith and hope transcends this world. And even though everything around us is shaken, there's a kingdom that does not shake. And that you and I have our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a witness to this darkened, broken, hurting world. But if you and I continue to, you know, join the crowd that's complaining, whining, and crying, we're going to sound just like them. That's my great fear. And so I'm going to pray today. I said, Lord, could you unite our hearts? And even though we have different temperaments and maybe we see things differently, let us be like those little tributaries as we're coming together, forming that mighty river. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's why we come to the house of the Lord. That's why we hear the word of the Lord. Today, if you've heard God's voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden it. Don't think that you've worshiped unless you put this into practice. You've applied it. It's real simple. If you've met the living God, he will change you, your heart. He will change you. And that's what brings about transformation. So Father, as we stand in your presence right now, and with every head bowed, maybe some of you here today say, you know, Pastor, God's speaking to me right now. I don't want to harden my heart. I have to confess I have complained. I have blamed I've been frustrated, I've been angry, I've been upset. That's you, raise your hand right now. Just say, yep, that's me. But you know what, I don't wanna stay there. I don't wanna camp there. I wanna be full of joy. I wanna be full of hope. I wanna be full of gladness. I wanna be a blessing in a time of challenge and difficulty. I wanna reveal Christ to people in this hour. So Father, I just thank you. Do a mighty work in our hearts. Do a mighty work in our hearts, oh God. Help us, Lord, to be the light in a world of darkness, in a world of confusion, in a world of heartache, in a world that's grieving, a world that's losing a sense of control, but we've never been in control, Father. Lord, may our eyes be fixed on you, Lord. Help us, O oh God, to reflect you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.